All right, I want to jump into uh, the series we've been doing, a series called New Creation. And uh, we've been talking about a scripture out of Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. It says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. So the, we talked about a little bit about if you don't understand the old covenant versus the new covenant, you can be walking in a covenant that was not designed for you. You can be trying to live out some things, especially in the law, that God, God has not designed for you, that it's been fulfilled in Jesus. The, but the truth of it is the power of that covenant has never been lost. The, 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 the covenant, the law, the holiness of the law, Jesus said it's not going to pass away, but it has been fulfilled in him. And the beautiful thing about that, the law was given for a very specific holy purpose, but it points to Jesus and that now we see that the requirement of the law is fully met in us who believe in Jesus. And again, if you don't understand that, what will happen is the old things won't pass away. They'll stay and they'll linger and they'll hold on to you and you'll hear lies about yourself. You'll hear lies that the enemy uses from the old covenant that do not apply to you. So we want to get into a little bit of what it means to be in Christ. Um, I'm going to talk today about some new, um, some new creation realities that you can live into. Um, you don't have to. You can choose not to do that. You can choose not to lean in. And these new realities don't change. They're still valid. They're, tr- they're still true. But if, it, but if you're not careful, what will happen is if you don't lean into those promises, even though they've been made and it's been made available for you, you won't experience it. So I just want to talk about a few of them. But just think about this, this concept of being in Christ um, is, is a really, it's a helpful thing to understand. So imagine, if you will, a doorway that you walk through a doorway and when you come in, there's a big sign that says, in Christ. And you look, at, you look around you, and inside that room, inside that place, everything that you have need of has been made available for you. So in Christ, there are these precious promises. Diane talked about that, actually, before we got up here. Ephesians 2.13, it says, We who were once far have been brought near. That's one of the promises. Romans 8, it says, We who were constantly condemned now have no condemnation. Romans 9, 1 John, we were objects of wrath, but now we're beloved children. Ephesians 2, we who were formerly darkened in our understanding and separated from the life of God are now filled with light and life. Colossians, we who were enemies of God now have peace with God. Colossians 1, 21, we who were alienated and far from God have now been reconciled and brought near. So these promises, when you understand these promises and you believe them and you lean into them and you receive them for the truth that they are, they do something powerful. They guard you against what we call legalism. Legalism is a very, it's a very interesting term and it came out of when, when the body of Christ began to be formed right after Jesus died on the cross. He came back to life. He sent his, his disciples out. Um, Paul begins to preach and teach. He gets, he's converted and he, gets, he begins to preach and teach and establish all these churches around the Mediterranean, uh, the Mediterranean Sea. And so these churches are established as Gentile churches. They did not have a connection to Judaism. He would, Paul would go into these cities. He would preach in the synagogue. And oftentimes, people in the synagogue would not receive that Jesus was the Messiah that the Jews had been praying and hoping for all these years. 
And so he would move over and he would begin to preach to the Gentiles, people who were not Jews, and he would preach Christ to them. They would give their lives to Jesus. They would begin to walk in the freedom. They would see transformation in their lives. And then over and over, what would happen is some of these Judaizers who had had encounters with Jesus but still obeyed the law, still said you have to obey the law to be saved. It's not Jesus only. It's Jesus plus you also have to do this. And a big one was circumcision, which is, again, part of the customs of the, of the Jewish people. And so Paul would get so angry at these guys because they would come in and he would say, they, they were coming in to take away your freedom. And that has not changed. If you've experienced freedom in Jesus, if you've believed in him, and you've had a transformation in your life, so often people, well-meaning people, will come in and try to bring you back under the law that Jesus fulfilled. And you'll be walking in legalism. You'll be walking with a, a skewed version of who God is. You'll look at him and say, he's not really good. I have to do all these things to make him happy. And you get a picture of God in your head of a God who's angry with you, that if you do something wrong, that if you don't do it just right, if you don't pray enough, if you don't give enough, if you don't go to church enough, if you don't do the right thing enough, then he will turn his face away from you. And I've heard this millions of times in churches. I used to preach it myself before I really understood grace. We would say, if you sin, God will turn his face from you. We would never, some people would, but I would never say God's actually going to you know, do away with it. He's going to turn his back and he's going to disown you. I wouldn't go that far. But I would press it to the point where you were always wondering, am, am I really in Christ? Am I really loved? Am I really the beloved? Am I really free? And, and because these old patterns would rise up in our lives, we would look at that and go, well, maybe God hasn't actually transformed me at all. Maybe I'm still lost in my sins. And the enemy would come in with all these lies and he would, he would Say these things in your heart and your mind and get you to believe that God had turned his face away from you and that you were, even though you were doing everything in your power to try to get God to love you, that God somehow was withholding his love and his kindness and his favor on your life. And so what would happen is you would either become a legalist, you would pretend like you were fulfilling the law and making God happy, and then you would look down your nose at everybody who wasn't. So the people who are really good rule followers they would become legalists, and the people who weren't good rule followers, they'd just become hippies, right, Christian hippies. <laughs> they would just say, man, I'm doing my best, I'm trying, um, you know, I hope God, I hope it works out. That's what, what would happen. Those are the two places you'd end up in. So understanding these promises and understanding what it means to be in Christ, it protects you from legalism. It protects you from the lie that God is not pleased with you. But what if I sin is always the question. Well, it's a good question, and that's what we're going to talk a little bit about today. So what happens, though, is you eventually come to a crossroads when you really begin to read your Scripture and really hear the, the, the message of the Gospel. You get to a place where you come to a crossroads. Either you believe in the finished work of Jesus on the cross for your sin, that He paid a price, He paid it all once for all. Hebrews goes through this numerous times. Once for all, He died for all. Once for all, it's done. It talks over and over again that, if, that Jesus didn't die multiple times. He died one time, and one time was enough because he was a perfect sacrifice. So either you believe in Jesus' finished work on the cross, or you believe that there's still something you have to add, something you have to do to get God to approve and to accept you. But here's the truth. It cannot be both of those. So we hear these phrases, man, I'm just a sinner saved by grace. Right? And you hear me say this all the time. Well, either you're a sinner or you say you're saved by grace, but you cannot be both of those things. 
And when you get that, it forces you to this crossroads. Either you're going to believe in the goodness and the work that Jesus did on the cross is enough, or you are going to constantly strive in your life to make God happy, to get him to be pleased with you. But it can't be both of those things. Grace means that God does something for me. Living under the law means that I'm doing something for God. So the truth is, though, Scripture speaks to this, is we have everything we need. I want to read this. This is the New Living Translation, which is a paraphrase. This is Second Peter, and you'll recognize it if you've been around the Bible for a little while. It says, by his divine power, God has given us everything we need for living a godly life. Now let that just sink in for a second. Not because of what I've done, but by his divine power, God has given us everything we need for living a godly life. We have received all of this by coming to know him, the one who called us to himself by means of his marvelous glory and excellence. And because of this glory and excellence, he has given us great and precious promises. These are the promises that enable you to share his divine nature and escape the world's corruption caused by human desires. See, the battle that we have, it's like I'm struggling with this issue. I'm struggling with this addiction or, or this challenge or this lie that's been in my life for so long. He says it's by his divine nature that we can escape the world's corruption caused by our own human desires. And lastly, it says, in view of all of this, Make every effort to respond to God's promises. Diane also brought that out. There's a place that you have to make a decision about what truth is. There, there's, we talk about this in theological circles um, about orthodoxy means right believing. What does the Bible ac actually teach us about how to believe, about who God is, what he did on the cross, what that means to us, our identity in him. But orthopraxy means are we actually living that out? A friend of mine preached a sermon one time uh, uh, about atheism, and he called it practical atheism. He said, often as Christians, we talk a big talk about who God is in our life, but we don't actually live it. So we're living, we're living as a hypocrite. That word just comes from the word that means actor. I'm acting out what I think everybody needs to see rather than living the truth that's actually coming out of what I believe. And so we want to go after that. So there's a scripture in Ephesians I'm going to read, and it says that we're blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Can you see the pattern? Everything that's happening, everything that comes from this is not about your works. It's not about anything you do or don't do. It's everything about being in Christ. What does it mean to believe in Christ, to trust in him, to have faith in what God has done, not what you've done? So Ephesians 1.3 simply says this. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Everything you have need of to live a godly life is available to you in Christ. It cannot come from your works. It will not come from your works. It, it, it just, it's not going to happen. So Ephesians, go and read. I read through Ephesians this week. And when you go through this passage, he talks about some of those spiritual blessings. We're going to talk about some of these, but let me just go through the verses, and I'm not going to read them all. I'm just going to tell you what some of these verses said. We are chosen before the foundation of the world. We're holy and blameless, verse 4. We're in his love. We're predestined to adoption, verse 5. We're accepted in the beloved. Redemption through his blood. Forgiveness of sins, 
the riches of his grace abound in us. He's made known to us the mystery of his will. In verse 9, we've obtained an eternal inheritance, heard the word of truth. We are sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. We know the hope of his calling in Christ. You are the riches of his inheritance, and the exceeding greatness of his power abounds to you if you are in Christ. So it's pretty important to understand what it means to be in Christ. But if you understand that and you begin to walk in it, what you begin to do is you begin to build your foundation, to build your life, not on what you can do for God, but on what God has done for you. And it makes you thankful. It also humbles you because you recognize in my own strength, I cannot do this. And that's literally the point of the law. But when you get it and you begin to hear these promises, you have to make a decision to let go of legalism, let go of the works of the law that Jesus fulfilled on your behalf and take up a different kind of life. And it's a life of believing, a life of living in faith and being in Jesus. And it sounds simple, but we get it wrong so often. We find ourselves falling back into this. Somehow there's something I've got to do to make God happy with me. And there isn't. As a matter of fact, there isn't anything you can do to make God happy with you except believe in what he's done for you. Very simple. So I'm just going to go through some of these. It won't take long. Um, number one, God gave us grace. 1 Corinthians 1.4 says, I always thank God. This is Paul. I always thank God for you because of his grace given to you in Christ Jesus. 2 Timothy, God who has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace, this grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time. Before you even thought about trying to do good or be good, grace was given to you so that you didn't have to try to be good. You could receive goodness and righteousness as a gift on your behalf. Here's another one, uh, Ephesians 1.7, the riches of God's grace. Ephesians 2, the incomparable riches of his grace, surpassing grace, Glorious grace, freely given to those he loves. Grace means literally unmerited favor. You did nothing to earn it. And it says that we abound in it, and that means to live in abundance. So think of it this way, that there is more than enough grace for everything that you're going to run into. And think of grace as a river whose source comes from God. It's never going to dry up. It's coming from somewhere you can't see. You can't do anything to make the source. You are not the source. You can choose to walk into the river or not walk into the river. But the river is been, it has been flowing since the foundations of time and will continue to flow long after time is done away with and we're living in eternity. This, rate, this grace of a river of the abundance of God's kindness and goodness is available to you. All you have to do is decide to believe it. Number two, he chose us in him. This is powerful. Ephesians 1.4, he chose us in him before the creation of the world. Uh, in him we are also chosen, Ephesians 1.11. And here's why this is important. You can know that your life actually matters, that your existence isn't an accident or a byproduct of evolution. <laughs> There's two verses down from that scripture. It says, we are accepted in the beloved. That means you are not an outcast. You are not rejected. You are not unworthy of approval, no matter what you have done or has been done to you. It's a powerful, powerful promise. The creator of the universe accepts you in Christ. You have been relationally reconciled to God, and you are pleasing to God, even if your life hasn't got it together yet. 
So maybe some of the relations in your life, the relationships in your life aren't where you need them to be. But hear this, your relationship with God has been settled before the foundations of time. It's been made available to be perfectly whole. You can walk in the fullness of that relationship because of what he's done. Number three, he gave us light and understanding. This is powerful, 1 John 5.20. We know also that the Son of God, who has come and given us understanding, so that we can know, we may know him who is true. So often people say, can I even know how God feels about me or what he's like? And the answer is yes. In Jesus, he's given us light and understanding. Second Corinthians, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. This picture is God takes the darkness away and we can see accurately. We are not without counsel. We are not left in the dark. We have discovered the path of life, and we can walk into it with the fullness that he's designed us to walk in. He wrapped up every answer to every aspect of the human condition in Christ, and he has given it to us freely. Number four, we were crucified with Christ. Galatians 6.14, May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Colossians, for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. What does it mean to be hidden? It means you are holy and blameless. It means you are fit to serve him and worship him despite your shortcomings. Anybody have any shortcomings? Don't raise your hand. God enjoys you. Listen, God enjoys you when you approach him. This is, the, this is the one that gets so many people. They're like, but I screwed up this week. I gave in to temptation. I did something I'm ashamed of. So I come into worship and it takes me 20 minutes to just get to the place where I believe God really actually loves me. So I can't approach him. So I don't approach him. So I sit there like a lump on the log with this, oh, I hope he loves me. I hope, I can, I hope somehow I can do something to make him happy with me again. He is happy with you now. But what if I sin? He's still happy with you. You know why? Jesus paid for that sin. Is the sin okay? Of course not, because Jesus had to pay for that sin, right? So, so it's, it's not hard to understand, but we get wrapped up in this lie from the legalists that said, well, if you keep sinning, you know, if you keep doing that, you keep talking to people about grace, they're going to be sinning all the time. Somebody said that to me, and I'm like, I, and it was a pastor, and I said, I find it amusing that you think your people aren't sinning. That's hilarious to me. He's living a lie, right? And, and, he's, and he's telling about all the, the places where they're missing the mark. And this is what we so, so often have done in church. It's like, you're, you're screwing up here. This is your sin. This is what you're doing wrong. The whole point of talking about missing the mark is talking about the mark, not the missing of it. But we don't do that. What's the mark? The mark is the gospel that it has been done for you. And the more you believe into this, what you find is the less you sin as a believer. Because you grow in maturity and the the nature, this new nature that's in your heart, this new heart that you have begins to live out of the abundance of that truth, not the lie that you're never going to live up to the standard. So you know what that does? It allows you to come boldly into the throne of grace, Hebrews says, for help when... When you're doing it right, no. When you are in need, when you are in, broken and hurting and just did something that you're like, That's, that is not who God is in me. 
And we feel that, and we, and we feel like we're condemned because we are violating the new nature in our heart when we sin as believers. But don't, don't take that as the lie that you now have a sinful nature or you were never, the sinful nature, nature was never taken away from you. That's not true. God gave you a new nature. You do not have a, a sinful nature any longer. So, number five, we were buried with him. Romans 6, we were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. The question is, how do you live a new life? Do you live it by constantly trying to live up the standard that you can never live up to? Or do you receive by faith the truth that Jesus paid the price and he, he, he fulfilled every part of the law so that you don't have to? And that's where you begin, and you're born again. And guess what? As a new believer, you're a baby, so you are going to screw up. But it's okay, as fathers and mothers, we don't put you in charge of things. Because you're going to break them constantly, right? We, especially as, in, as new believers, don't put you in charge of people because you will hurt people. That's what you'll do. Because you've been hurt yourself and you haven't come into this new understanding. And, and often our minds have not been transformed, have not been renewed. So we're not living out the truth of what's happening, happened in our heart. But the danger of that is we begin to believe the lie that because I am not fully formed in Christ yet, I'm not walking in maturity yet, that somehow I'm also not a son. And we forget, it's okay to be a new son. It's okay to be immature. It's not okay to stay immature. <laughs> Don't do that. But can you? And the answer is absolutely yes. But you're never going to walk in the fullness of God's inheritance that's made, been made available to you if you don't believe this truth. You only have to believe. This is what Romans 6 says. Verse 11, just a few verses down. It says, Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God. You have to do this. What does that look like? This is the way it looks. It's not a word game, and it's not a matter of positive thinking. It's a matter of conforming our minds, letting our minds being conformed or transformed, and renewing our minds. This is what it says in Romans 12. It says, do not conform. This is a command, a New Testament command. And New Testament commands only are a command because you have the ability to fulfill the command. The law is a command that you cannot fulfill. Thou shalt not. Good luck with that. That's literally the point of the law is to show you you can't. But a command in the New Testament is because you've been given a new nature. You've been given everything that you need to live a godly life. So don't let the lie say that you haven't. It says, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but, here's the second part of the command, be transformed, how? By the renewing of your mind. You have to think differently. Anybody seen some of the videos online about people taking the red pill? Anybody? <laughs> right? It's a, it's a reference from, um, from a, a, a sci-fi movie, and the whole idea is you, you take this pill and you see things accurately. I've seen this go from all kinds of, from political conversations, uh, especially into things like the things of the Spirit. Like my whole life, I believe this lie about the, you know, the things that are available in the Holy Spirit are no longer available because they died. In the, you know, so somebody taught them that in Bible college. Their whole denomination believed it, and they believed it their whole life until they took the red pill and they saw something they couldn't unsee. And then they can never, ever go back. Once you've experienced this, it's, it's the same thing with the truth of who Jesus is. We feel awkward sometimes talking to somebody who doesn't, who doesn't know Jesus because it's like talking to a blind man about the color red. 
But if they, ha- if they could have a flash and a moment of their eyes open just enough to see what the color red looks like, they can never go back to not knowing what that is. And that's, that's the beauty of our minds being transformed is when we begin to read and believe and walk in these promises, it begins to change the way we think. We go from thinking like a worldly person who does not know God, who thinks that I can do it myself and I can't, and the law teaches me that, right? And I come into grace and I begin to think, and the Bible says that you now as a believer have the mind of Christ. But so often we're not using the mind of Christ because we're not letting these new promises, the promises of Scripture, transform our mind. you got to dwell on it. If you don't read your Bible, you're not ever going to see what it says. That's super deep, I know, right? (laughs) But are you taking time on a regular basis to read Scripture? I remember reading Scripture and, and doing it on a daily basis and going, I have no idea what this means. That was 30 years ago. Now, I'm, I still, from time to time, going, I don't know what that means. And I have to go look something up or go look up the context and go figure out. because Why? Because it's a journey and I'm learning and growing. But not on this issue. But there was a time when I thought that by my works, I had to make God happy. That somehow, if he was going to be pleased with me, it was going to be something I had to do. And then when I discovered that it's not about anything I do, but about what he did for me, Now I could take it at face value, even in my brokenness, even in my fear, even in not knowing who I am and having been lied to about my identity. Maybe I grew up with fearful and angry parents, or maybe I didn't have parents at all, whatever. I I grew up with these lies in my life that tell me something that's not true about who God is and who I am. But at some point, when I begin to believe these promises, my mind gets transformed, and when it happens, you can never, ever go back. Another thing God did these new realities we have to live in is God cut away our old selves. He took away our sinful nature. Listen to this. Colossians 2.11. In him you were also circumcised. In the putting off of the sinful nature. I don't want to get into circumcision. <laughs> Some of you are like, please don't. I don't want you to get into that. But here's what you have to understand. That was one of the things that the legalists came and said, you have to identify with the Jewish people and Moses in order for God to love you and to be happy with you. And Paul fought against that with everything he was to the point where he said in one place, you talk about sarcasm in the Bible, he said, I wish you would go all the way and circumcise everything. Right? I'm like, I read that, I'm like, that's in the Bible? Paul said that? Oh my gosh, right? But what, why is he saying that? He's saying the circumcision was, it was a symbol of something about in the old covenant that was coming for reality in the new covenant. That's what types and shadows were. They were types and shadows, but they weren't the reality of it. Is it why is it And someone walks into the room and it's light in that room and it's dark, you know, darker in this room and, and they stand in the doorway and they cast a shadow the moment you see the shadow, what do you do? Go, oh, wow, look, a shadow. Is that what we do? No, we go, oh, there's a shadow from something else. And we look to the reality of what cast the shadow. And this is what the old covenant, it was all about, the types and the shadows. And so Paul uses this description about circumcision, and he says, in this symbolism of cutting something away, right? To, to go at, why was that so, so important? Because it was, there was going to come a day when the, that concept, the circumcision of the heart, 
the Bible says, that he would cut away our sinful nature. It's taken away. It's removed. It's no longer there. And when people see that, that was a symbolism of what it meant to be Jewish in the natural sense of it, in the, in the spiritual sense, when people see that our sinful nature has been cut away, that we walk in happiness with God, that we know God is pleased with us even when we're not perfect. When people see that, they're like, something about you is different. Something about you is different. So he says, this circumcision is the putting off of the sinful nature, not with a circumcision done by the hands of men, but with the circumcision done by Christ, what he did on the cross, having been buried with him in baptism and raised with him through your faith in the power of God who raised him from the dead. Your faith is not in something you did. It's in something he did. Number seven, he made us alive with Christ. We know about death. We know about baptism. Baptism is something you should do as a believer immediately. I love it when people come and tell me my faith is private. No such thing. There is literally no such thing as private faith. You don't get to have private faith. You know how I know? We just did one of the, one of the things that Jesus told us to do. Do this in remembrance of him with communion. Another one is get baptized. Why? Because you come out and you, 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 you symbolize something to everyone in the world that I relate, I associate, I'm connected, I am in Christ, and this is what it looks like. Jesus died and went down into the ground. This is a symbolism of baptism. And then he came alive again in resurrection, and that's exactly what has happened to us. That's what baptism is about. We've been, we, we love to talk about the death, but we forget that we have been made alive in Jesus. In a moment. Colossians. When you were dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave all your sins, except that one that you struggle with. That's sarcasm, in case you miss it, right? <laughs> in your life, so often we've turned, we know this, we've turned our back on God. We have consciously rebelled against his law. We have ignored his wisdom and thought we knew better. But in Christ, you are completely, 100% forgiven. You are heaven ready the day you give your life to Jesus. How do I know this? Jesus is on the cross between two thieves. Go read this story. And, and one of them says, if, if you're the Christ, then get us down from here. Right? And the other guy said, you... you the arrogance that you have moments before your death, he looks at Jesus and he said, he has done nothing. We are dying for righteous reasons. We deserve this death. He does not. And he looked at Jesus and he believed in him and Jesus looked at him and said, today you will be with me in paradise. He didn't pray a sinner's prayer. He never went to a Bible study. He never gave money to the church. He never went to a meeting. He never did one single thing in, fr in the fruit of his life of the indication of what he believed except what he said to Jesus. And Jesus said, that is enough. And he took him to heaven with him that day. So if you think you have to do anything to please God, go read that scripture. And just what it does is it makes you incredibly thankful for who God is. Here's what else he's done. We were washed, sanctified, and justified. 1 Corinthians 6, 11, right before this passage, there's this long list of the things that people had given themselves over to in sin. Some of them, we look at that, and some of them, culturally, we say, oh, that's really a bad sin. That's a bad sin. That's a bad sin. And then it gets down to things like, you know, lying and stuff, <laughs> right? And, and being a drunkard. 
not drinking, but a drunkard, right? And so those things are also involved in some of these other, you know, what we call dastardly sins. And this is what, this is what Paul said. He says, and that is what some of you were. Listen, he didn't say this is what you did. He said that is what some of you were, right? You were the sin that you embraced. And so often we see that in our world today and culture, people embracing a sinful idea as an identity, right? Why? Because it begins to take over. And this is what Paul said. He said, when you were involved like that in the world, you, these things were you. You were these things. Listen to this. He says, and that is what some of you were. And listen to this. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were washed. That means you were made clean when you were dirty. You were sanctified. You were set aside for a holy purpose. You were justified. That means God declared you free and righteous, even though you had sinned. And it goes on, it says, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. In Christ, what you were, you no longer are. So as a believer, we say this. That sin you just did, maybe that's what you did, but that is not who you are in Christ. Don't believe it. You can if you want to. But what you were before Jesus, that's what you were. But when Jesus comes, he takes away that sinful nature and he gives you a new nature. We were washed, we were cleansed. Here's the way to think of this. You may have a sin habit still, but you do not have a sinful nature. You have a new one. Number nine, God raised us up and sealed us. This is one of my favorite new creation realities. He sealed us in heavenly realms. Ephesians 2 says, and God raised us up with Christ and seated us. The reason why it uses that phrase is the Bible says that Jesus came and he sat down at the right hand of God, meaning it was finished. Nobody sits down when they're next to God. Nobody gets to do that, right? So it speaks of the fact that Jesus is God, but it also speaks to the finished work that he did on the cross. And he came and he sat down, and the Bible says, until his enemies are made his footstool. What does that mean? There's still something happening, even though this reality is true. There's still a world that's lost and undone without God. There's still an enemy of our souls, that it's work in the sons of disobedience, the Bible says. We see it all the time. And, and the scripture says, it goes on, it says, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace, listen, expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. We're going to get to heaven. I imagine this. And I'm going to stand before the Lord. Not in judgment. That's already occurred. Jesus took my judgment. I'm going to stand before the Lord at the seat of mercy, right? And you guys are all going to be out there and you're going to know what I've done, and it's going to freak you out. <laughs> but I'm going to know what you did, and I won't be freaked out because I know what I did. right? So, but I'm going to stand there, and here's what's going to happen. You're going to look at what I've done and the fact that God's ushering me into heaven, and you are going to be amazed, not at me, but his incomparable richness of grace in his kindness towards David Hale. And you're going to go, wow. Dave was bad, <laughs> but God is so good. And you're going to do that with you. But here's the beautiful thing. You don't have to wait till then to have that revelation. You can have it now. Was I bad? Of course. Was I the sin that I was? Yes. I'd given myself up wholly to it. I believed the lie of the enemy against the goodness of God. 
But at some moment, I believed something different, and everything changed. We were marked in Him with a seal. You were included in Christ, Ephesians 1 says, when you heard the word of truth. Think about that. Some word of truth has to come for you to get this. It says, the gospel of the good news of your salvation, having believed, that's past tense, you were marked in Him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit. He marked us, He sealed us, never to return to that old man. Never. My pastor used to say, or one of my professors in Bible school, said, your, your old man is, so, is never so dead, he can't be resurrected. And I thought, oh, that's deep. And then later on I thought, oh, that was a lie. It wasn't deep. It was a lie. I know what he meant. What he meant was, you can still sin if you're a Christian. Duh. <laughs> I figured that out quick, right? But what he was trying to tell me is that your sinful nature is still your nature. And when I believed that, I bought into that lie that I could not transition. I could not, I could not move. I could not have my mind be transformed that I was forever in that state of brokenness. And God's promise to me is no, that's not true at all. There's something different. So what happens is when you live in these, these realities, you develop a strong spirit. I know tons of people who have a weak spirit. They're Christians. Yes, of course they're Christians, but they have a weak spirit. The world grabs hold of that all the time and says, you call yourself a Christian? I just read the other day about a pastor in Dothan who got caught up. He had embezzled something like $400,000 from the, the ministries that he started, and he lied to the IRS. He said he was disabled. In the meantime, he was working 100. In another document, he said, I'm working 150 hours a week. I'm like, that's a lot of hours because there's only like 160-something in a week. So, right? So that would get flagged. And I look at that, and the world grabs hold of that and says, see, it's all a lie. And I look at that and see, that pastor needs prayer. <laughs> right? But there, for the grace of God, goes me. That he can be, he's deceived. He had a weak spirit. Is he a believer? I don't know the guy, but there's a good chance he actually is a Christian. But he's a baby Christian that never grew up, and somebody handed the guy a hammer or a gun. You never hand a hammer or a gun to a baby. Right? I ate dinner one time with my cousin who was all kinds of broken. He had a little boy. Um, little boy's name was Luke, and we were sitting down to dinner, and the little boy was getting antsy because his dad had no idea how to parent him. And, and, and in, before I could say anything, my cousin handed that little baby a, a bottle of Worcestershire sauce upside down because it has the skinny end on like this. He handed that baby a club is what he did. And, and I was like, oh, I mean, literally, I was like, wait. And before I could do that, that little baby goes, whoa, 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 wham, and hit himself in the head. And then I just did this. Because that little baby went, <laughs> anybody, anybody relate? And this is what we do so often. We give baby Christians power and authority. They do damage. And then we say, because of that, there is no truth to having a new nature. But for that one person that the world takes advantage of and displays for everybody to see that somehow their life disproves the life of God, there are thousands, if not hundreds of thousands, if not millions of believers who are faithful. But the world's going to take advantage of that. And if you're not careful, you see stuff like that and you begin to believe a lie and you begin to live out of that lie instead of out of the truth. So let me close with this. If you understand new creation realities, the Bible says you will begin to reign in life. 
And if you don't walk in these precious promises, if you don't walk in these new realities, if you don't learn them and understand them, read them, study them, um, get your brain around it, it's like this doesn't make sense, then take more time. Spend a talk, have conversations in small group, whatever. Learn, grow, let your mind be transformed by this revelation. Because if you don't, you won't reign in life. You will strain in life. And you'll live a life as a practical atheist as if God is not for you when the whole time he was for you. So stop saying, I'm a sinner trying to obey holy laws. And start saying, I am a righteous person throwing off what no longer fits my new nature. Stop saying I'm sick trying to get healed and start saying I am a whole person rejecting any claim sickness makes on my body, right? That's a practical understanding of it. It's a, it's a, it's a fight. You're pushing back against the darkness when he's trying to tell you a lie about that. Stop saying or, or stop trying to perform to earn your father's love and attention and learn that when you get it, you do exploit exploits because you're sure of your father's love and his attention towards you. We're not unholy people trying to learn a better way of living. We are God's holy people learning to do holy acts. There's this powerful scripture in John where they ask Jesus a question. Anytime somebody asks Jesus a question, you really need to pay attention because it's going to be helpful for you. It says this, Then they ask him, these people, ask Jesus, What must we do to do the works God requires? Because they were living under the law. Right? What must we do to do the works that God requires? They got all that right. Jesus answered and he said, listen, the work of God is to believe in the one he has sent. Understand the difference. The first one's plural. What must we do to do the works of God? And God's like, you want to do the works of God? Here's the work, the one thing you have to do. Ignore all of that and believe in the one he sent. You do that, the works of the law will begin to come out of you naturally. All the things, the, the standards that the law brings about are the standards who God is. And what's happening in you is God is, Jesus is being formed inside of you by the power of the Holy Spirit, by you learning, being discipled, leaning in, having your mind renewed, having your mind transformed. But if you don't do that, then you just live your life in a constant struggle always feeling this low-grade fever of guilt, shame, and condemnation that never goes away. And I know because I lived it even as a pastor. And God's like, would you like to live something different? Would you like life and more abundantly? And I said, I would like that very much, Lord. <laughs> Second Corinthians 5.17, I started with this. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away, Behold, all things have become new. Here's my question to you this morning. Are you in Christ? That's the one question you have to ask and the one question you have to answer. The Bible says those who believe will be saved. Those who don't believe will be condemned. And the Bible says in 1 John, or sorry, in John 3, 16, God loved the world so much he gave his only begotten son that whoever would believe in him, anybody know the rest of it? would have eternal life. Anybody know the next verse? <laughs> Most people don't. <laughs> you know what it talks about? It says that we were condemned 
already. In our darkness, in our brokenness, in our sinful nature, it's not that we're going to be condemned by the truth of this message. The message was good news because we all know we were already condemned. We know the difference. The question is, are you in Christ? Have you believed in the one God sent? Have you placed your trust and your faith in your relationship with God, being settled, not by anything that you can do, but by what Jesus did on the cross over 2,000 years ago now. He said, at, at, the, on, at the end of all of this, he said, it is finished. And symbolically, the moment he says this, all of the law that had been practiced and the, the sacrifice of the lamb, it turns out was even before the beginning of the time, the understanding that a lamb, a perfect spotless animal, had to be offered on your behalf because you sinned. So you had to take the innocent blood of another person or another thing, and it had to pay for your sin. That it was a blood economy you could not pay any other way. Not in how sorry you are, not in all the promises that you're going to do better. It had to be the blood of a perfect spotless person or animal. And all of all that time, up into that moment, those lambs had been slain. And on that day, you could literally hear, it was close enough, you could hear the lambs being slaughtered for the sins to push the people's judgment of sins back one more year. And on that day, the Bible says, into the Holy of Holies, into the place where if you went with your sin, you died. It was a picture. The Bible says that that thing that held us out, that, that curtain, it was more than a curtain, it was so thick you could, you could barely move it with your hands. The Bible said it was torn from the top to the bottom, symbolizing what? That all of that, and it says it over and over again, the blood of animals could never satisfy the judgment that God had. But one man did, the perfect lamb of God. The Bible says when he died and he goes down into the grave, somewhere in that moment, because he was perfect and holy and he didn't deserve to die, but he died anyway. He took his own blood into the heavenly, the Bible says the heavenly temple, that the temple on earth had been pictured and everybody saw it and they're like, oh, this is so amazing. But it literally was a shadow and a type of a heavenly temple. And in that temple, the Bible says that Jesus took his own blood, the perfect sacrificial blood, and he sprinkled it into the holy of holies. And the Bible says that he was raised again on the third day. Here's what's so significant about that. Why we celebrated at Easter so much is because that means the sacrifice was accepted. Hebrews goes after this and we get it wrong. It says because of this, there is now no longer any sacrifice that can be offered for your sin. We read that and say what that means is if I sin having known the truth of Jesus and who he is, then I can't be restored to God that somehow I've committed the unpardonable sin. And it's literally saying the opposite thing. It's literally saying that because Jesus died and what he did on the cross, but that was the perfect sacrifice. And because it was perfect, no other offering can ever be made again that would be that perfect. And it was done for you on your behalf, before the foundation of time was planned. Why? Because God loves you. He also likes you. <laughs> Which means, what do you walk away with from this new reality? If you begin to live this, all of a sudden your battle to be close to God goes away. It just goes away. There's no longer any battle to be close to God because you realize everything that was needed to bring you close to God happened when Jesus died on the cross, and when you believed in that, that became yours. You are in Christ now. 
Well, what if my life is a mess? Welcome to being a baby Christian and growing up. Some people never do. Literally, they stay babies their whole life. Paul wrote about this. It's part of the challenge of the local church. My challenge to you is the way you grow up into maturity is not by trying to get God to love you, but it's to realize how much he already does and that everything you have need of has been made available and it is yours for the taking, so why not take it? You know the answer to that is because somehow I don't feel worthy. Maybe you never feel worthy. We don't care if you feel worthy. You are worthy. So stop living from your feelings. Get a strong spirit in what happens, depression, anxiety, the challenges of this world, the lies that come against you pop up in your life. And when you have a strong spirit because you're walking and believing these, these new creation realities, what happens is you push back against that and go, I may not feel this way, but I know this is true. And you lean into it, and guess what happens? Your feelings follow your faith. Don't let your faith follow your feelings. Would you stand with me? My prayer as we finish this series out next week, my prayer for us is, man, if we could get this, it will literally transform our lives, not just for what we can receive because there's such a massive inheritance available to us and we are so not walking in it. But when we begin to get this and this becomes the culture of who we are as a church, it is going to turn the city upside down because so few, even Christians, understand these realities and are walking in it. But if we begin to do this, people are going to get around us and go, why are you so full of joy? And you're going to be able to say, because I'm not following my feelings. I'm following a truth. Would you like to know what that truth is? We're going to get to share this, and we're going to see people's lives transform. Amen? So let me pray for us. Jesus, thank you so much for your kindness. God, thank you that every promise, Lord, that, that was ever made on our behalf was fulfilled in you, and it was given to us because of what you did on the cross. Lord, we believe it. I believe this truth, Lord. Help me to understand it. Help me to reconcile it in my heart and make it clear. Lord, help me to get it, Lord, so that the enemy can never use lies against me to tell me that you're not amazing, that you're not good, that you're not kind. Lord, that I'll never believe those lies again. And Lord, it begins to open the door of the inheritance that you paid such a heavy price to give me. I receive that now in Jesus' name. If you need prayer this morning, we'd love to pray for you. But before you